So am I on? Can everybody hear me? I good? I turn. There I. There we are. There we are. There we are. <laughs> well, good morning, and uh, I think I need to uh, start off with giving a little bit of context here and uh, full disclosure. <laughs> About uh, a couple of months ago. Tim came to Jason and I and said he thought it would be a good idea if we tried to collaborate on a sermon together. And so we thought about it for a couple of weeks, and we said, okay, we'll do that. And so we've been working on this sermon now, and we were supposed to do it last week. But as you know, we had the Ryans were here, so we delayed it a week. And this week, Jason got sick. So, so uh, uh, you got me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, I, so I was only supposed to do half of this, but I get to do the whole thing. So uh, we'll see how this, we'll see how the other half goes. But uh, we'll kind of get into. I, I just want to say a quick prayer, and then we'll get into the, to the message this morning. Okay, <clears throat> Father, you are a good, good Father, and we've been so highly blessed. And Father, as we uh, look into your word this morning, I pray, Father, that we can find some insight uh, into who you are and to see just the beast, to see just how much, how loved we truly are by you and that we can find ways in our hearts and in our lives that we can Love ourselves more so that we can love other people more. We just pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Jason came up with this great idea, I thought. Uh, Our text today is going to be in John chapter 1. And uh, we're going to be in John most of the time. We'll skip out a couple other times. But we're going to be mostly in the book of John this morning. But uh, we're going to start in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We're going to skip down to verse 9. It says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world has made, was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
You know, I think, in, in my mind, this is arguably one of the most astounding passages in all of Scripture. The text begins by telling us that the Word was with God and was God, and He was participated in creation. And it ends by telling us that God became flesh and lived among us. How utterly astounding and amazing is that? I mean, just to think about God becoming flesh and living among us. Jesus becoming flesh, followed by his death, burial, and resurrection, is the unique claim of Christianity above all other religions in the world that I know about. But what does that tell us about God? And even more importantly, what does that mean to us today? And what does it mean that Jesus came full of grace and truth? That's, that's what we want to try to focus in on today, full of grace. Jason was supposed to talk about grace, and I was supposed to talk about truth. That's how we were going to break it up. But I get to mash it all together today. Okay, so what does it mean to be that Jesus is full of grace and truth? Well, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19, he says, Jesus, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So all the fullness of God is in Jesus. And John tells us that Jesus was full of grace and truth. So if we kind of connect the dots a little bit, we can kind of say, that God is grace is full of grace and truth, and I want to uh, I want to start off by taking a, a, a couple of incidents from Jesus' life to kind of illustrate how Jesus balanced this idea of grace and truth as he dealt with people in his life. I use the word I I've struggled with. Whether to use the word incidents is kind of hard to say. I, you know, I want to say a couple of stories, but I don't want to leave it that these are just stories. These are things that actually happened, right? And so, uh, but there are a couple of couple of stories in Jesus' life that I want to focus on to see how Jesus balanced this idea of, tra- of grace and truth as He dealt with people. And then I want to ask, how does that how does that impact us? How do we do that today? Okay, that's kind of where we're trying to go. So the first story is in John chapter 4. This is a pretty familiar story, I think, where Jesus is in Samaria, and he, he comes in contact with this woman at the well. Okay, and I'm not going to read the whole story for... Kind of time's sake here. I just want to, I just want to, I think it's a pretty familiar story. Jesus has this really interesting conversation with this uh, woman, uh, a Samaritan woman at this well. But I want to hone in on starting in verse 16 in John chapter 4. Where Jesus tells you, he says, go tell your husband and come back. I have no husband. She replied, and Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is 
quite true. Now, I don't know about you. You, you may find that kind of a, an inter- odd situation. In, in, my, in my practice, this is not <laughs> unique. I've had many people come. You know, first thing I do when somebody comes to my office, a, a new client, I draw what we call a genogram, which is kind of a, a family tree kind of a thing to kind of get to know their family. And it's not unusual at all. For, for particularly a woman to have three, four husbands living with somebody now. This is not unique today. Now, you have to remember that this was first century Palestine, and it was probably not that common, although it may have been more common than we think, but this was not socially accepted, let's say. And if we were to think about the truth cops back then, they'd be all over this one, right? <laughs> Well, it's interesting to see how Jesus dealt with this woman. Remember, five husbands, living with somebody now that's not her husband. And what is she, how, what, how does she respond? She changes the subject, doesn't she? She starts talking about where we're supposed to worship and all this other kind of stuff. And what did Jesus do? You know, now, if a, a, good, a good truth cop today would have to... Let's not talk, let's not change the subject. Let's get back on talk. We're talking about you. Right? But Jesus kind of went with her. But he focused, he turned her attention to himself, the Messiah. He turned her attention to Jesus. And I would suggest that, you know, Rather than, you know, he didn't judge her, he didn't condemn her. He just turned her attention to himself and who he was. And I'm wondering, you know, the Bible tells us that it's the Holy Spirit that convicts, that convicts us of sin, right? Maybe we, do, we try to take over the Holy Spirit's job too much. Maybe we should leave the convicting of sin to the Holy Spirit and we, it's our job to turn people's focus to Jesus. <clears throat> the second story I want to look at is in John chapter 8. This is another pretty familiar story. We see here in John chapter 8, starting verse 3, that some... Uh, Pharisees and teachers of the law bring a woman to Jesus. It says, The teachers of the law and Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. I wonder why they would use that as a trap. Think about that for a second. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, to throw, uh, let any uh, one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who 
herd began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus, standing up, asked her, Woman, where are those who, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You know, I, I find it interesting, you know, the, the Pharisees brought this woman in front and just stu- it said, it made the point that it stood her up in front of the, everybody there and con- con- uh, accused her right in front of everybody. How uh, humiliating that must have been for the woman. Jesus, in his wisdom, was able to kind of get to the harder stuff, though, Right? And, uh, you know, I think as Christians, a lot of us, we really like this particular story, you know, because here's, I mean, it's totally true what the Pharisees said, wasn't it? I mean, it was true that in the law, the law said that if, you know, caught the person on adultery, they could be, they could be stoned. So there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that, but... You know, I, I think we like to look at, at stories like this and, and say and think, you know, Jesus did not condemn this person that was in obvious sin. Surely wouldn't condemn me in my sin, right? We like to latch on to these kind of stories. And, and, and the grace part of this which we can see is is Jesus having grace on this woman to not condemn her. But where does the truth come in? He did not shy away from the truth. He didn't say, hey, woman, what you're doing is okay. He said, go and leave your life of sin. He said, stop, stop doing what you're doing. And so there's this balance between confronting the truth but not condemning those who fall short and judging. You know, John chapter 12. We're still in John here. In John chapter 12, starting in verse 44, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me does, uh, does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. But that sank in for a second. If we're supposed to be like Jesus... Maybe that should be our mission, to not judge, but to try to save. Not that there's no judge, because he goes on to say there is a judge. For the one who rejects me and does not accept my word, the very words I have spoken will, uh, the very words I have spoken will condemn them in the last day. So there will be a judge, but it's not us, is the point, I think, in that verse. You know, we don't have to do the Holy Spirit's job. Yeah. 
He's perfectly capable of convicting people of their sin without our help. You know, our text says, back in John chapter 1, that Jesus came full of grace and truth. I want to start honing in a little bit more in on the balance of those things. In John chapter 14, Jesus tells the people, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus kind of puts truth as kind of in the link between the way and the life. You see that? You know, if you've heard me speak before, you you know that most of just about every time I get up to speak, everything that I talk about it has a beginning somewhere back in Genesis one through three, right? <laughs> I always go back to Genesis one through three, and I think this is not no different today. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna take a little side trip into Genesis chapters one through three, and. Uh, and I want to start by asking the question, do you know what a temple is? A temple typically is, is some place where people go to worship and serve God, right? That's a temple. So when we go back into Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, this is before, obviously, Genesis chapter 3. So Genesis chapter 1, before the fall... I want us to think in terms of the creation of the world, not in terms of of the globe that we see today, but think of it in terms of God's temple, that God created a temple for himself, for mankind to come and inhabit, to worship and serve him, and it's kind of his temple. Okay, does that make sense? That's in chapter 1. Chapter 2, in the middle of chapter 2, it says that God planted a garden. Now, I don't know if I really ever thought about it much, but, you know, the garden is a specific place on the globe. It was bounded by those rivers. It wasn't the whole world. It was just in that one spot. And we, we see in, 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 in the, the story there that God had this habit of walking in the mist with Adam and Eve, and he communed with them in the garden if you go back into the Old Testament and the tabernacle and the temple, where did where was God's presence? In the Holy of Holies, right? So maybe if we think of the garden not as the rows of tomatoes and corn and stuff that we see in our backyards today, but we think of it more in terms of uh, a royal garden like you would see like at the Palace of Versailles over in Kensington Palace, you know, these lush vegetation and manic... This is where God's presence was. It was almost like God's holies of holies in his temple creation. And that's where Adam and Eve were. And in the middle were these two trees. And those trees in in Hebrew literature were symbolic of, of things. Uh, the, the, we call, you know, the tree that we refer to as the tree of life was the, represented... The, the kind of maturity that it takes to live wisely, to live a long life. The other tree, the tree of the we call the knowledge of good and evil, was symbolic of the uh, wisdom and maturity 
to live wisely, to be able to discern between good and evil. Now let's think about, so why were Adam and Eve not allowed to eat of the knowledge of good and evil? So let's, no, no, we'll get, we're getting there. So, uh, Ask your parents, do you sit down and have the birds and bees talk with your kids at four years old? Why not? There's some kind of knowledge that we're just not capable of handling if we're inexperienced and immature. Okay? And so there's some kinds of knowledge that we're not capable of dealing with if we're too immature and too inexperienced. Now, we have no idea what the passage of time is between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, but I'm, a, I'm a, just based on the story, I'm thinking that Adam and Eve were kind of inexperienced and immature in the ways of the world. They weren't really fully mature yet. So God's saying, eh, that knowledge of and evil is not quite ready. You're not quite ready for that yet. And yet in chapter 3, we see the serpent comes to Eve and asks her a question. And Eve, Eve answers the question, says, God did say you must not eat the fruit from that tree in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you're going to die. And I want to suggest to you that the story of Adam and Eve is our story. We all start out innocent, inexperienced, and immature. And we grow by making choices. Those two trees in the middle of the garden, to me, I think, represent choices that were laid before Adam and Eve. They could choose to eat or not eat. They could choose to follow God's direction or not. We grow by making choices, and our choices have real consequences to them. When we listen to wisdom and we follow God's direction, there's life. And when we don't, there's death. Not in the, I mean, eventually we all die, but I think the death, we, I think we all know, is the hardship, the disappointment, the stuff that happens when we don't follow God's way. Now, some people might ask, why did God even allow the serpent in the garden? You ever thought about that? You ever think that? Why did he even allow that? Have you ever talked to someone that says, you know, I have a hard time believing in God because how could a loving God allow all this bad stuff to happen in the world around us? Isn't that basically the same question? Why did God allow the serpent into the garden to begin with? You know, if those two trees represent choices for us to make, I think maybe perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps the serpent gives us the opportunity, the space to make a choice. And notice what what did the serpent tempt 
Eve with. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Isn't that what we all want? Isn't that what God wants for us, to be able to be like him? Isn't that what our goal as Christians is to become more like God? You know, I've thought about that quite, you know, what was wrong with that goal? There's nothing wrong with the goal, but it's how to get there. God wanted us, to, wanted Adam and Eve to walk with him, to grow, like Sonny was talking about last week. You remember his sermon about the, the, the harvest and the growth and how slow it's slow. You grow slowly. You make choices. You grow in your, your knowledge. That's God's way. Serpent says, hey, all you got to do is eat this fruit. He, gave, he offered Eve a shortcut. And how many of us, when we were like 14, 15, didn't want to be adults right then? Right? Isn't that what we all wanted? We wanted to grow up and be adults right then, but maybe we weren't ready for the adult life quite then, right? And what happened when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit? They gained the knowledge... Right? But they weren't ready for it. It burdened them with toxic shame. And they realized they were naked. Their distrust generated fear and mutual accusations. Pointing the fingers. But how did God respond in that situation? God responded in truth and grace, grace and truth. He described the truth part of it. He described the consequences. You know, when we make bad decisions, there are consequences. And he described the consequences that were going to happen and what they were going to have to live with. And that was the truth of the situation. But he also graced them. He, he gave them clothes, let them live. He graced them with children. You know, after God shoot him out of the garden, you know, he put that cherubim up to guard, to guard him to not let him back in. Some people might say, so why didn't God put a cherubim to guard those trees to begin with to keep them away from the tree? Would have saved us a lot of trouble, right? But it also would have robbed us from the freedom, from the freedom of being able to choose. And ultimately, we see this freedom to choose and the consequences of our choices played out all through the biblical narrative. I mean, that's the story of the Bible. People making bad choices, suffering the consequences, but God extending grace to his people. So what does all this mean to you and me today? How do we take this all in? How do we apply this today? And first of all, I want us to notice that God modeled this idea of grace and truth way back in Genesis 3. And Jesus imitated it in his life, at least in those two stories that we looked at earlier. Right? So how can we balance grace and truth in our our lives and when when we're dealing with each other and the people around us? So remember back in John 14, Jesus said, I am the way. (laughs) 
the truth, and the life. Earlier in John, in John chapter 8, this is a passage I think we're all familiar with. Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We like to quote that one. We don't always quote the verse before it. That's verse 32. Verse 31 says, Jews who believed him, Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So the way is the way of Jesus' teaching. I am the way, my teaching will lead you to the truth, which will lead you to the abundant life that you're looking for. And that's the entire biblical narrative that we see played out from Genesis 3 on. You know, I grew up... uh, I grew up going to church, let's say. <laughs> my dad was an elder in the church. My grandfather on my mom's side of the family was an elder in the church way back. And so, I mean, I, w- I went to church every week, every Sunday, every Wednesday. And I would say, looking back on my life, at some point I, just, I, I realized that I, I grew up to be a good Pharisee. You know, uh, I, knew the right, I knew the right answers didn't really know God. If you if you kind of can't, you know, I, it made me wonder how how much do we really teach our children about grace? You know, when we're when we're correcting every little thing that they do, is that the way God treats us? You know, I learned. All the right stuff, at least what I thought was the right stuff, but I don't know that I really learned about God growing up. You know, the flip side of that, there are some people, there are some parents who are all about grace. You know, no boundaries, no consequences. And I don't really believe that without consequences... I say I think without consequences it's it's really hard to learn how to make good decisions. We've got to make a few bad ones in order in order to learn how to make good ones. And if there are no consequences, then it's hard for us to learn. How do we balance between grace and truth? I want to suggest four things. Four, four things for us to, to really focus on. First of all is we need to commit our lives to knowing the scriptures and actually doing what they say. John or James chapter, it's in James. I think it's chapter one, but I'm not sure. <laughs> we need to know the scriptures. We need to know what God, what Jesus commands are. We're going to follow them. But when we say to hold to them, what that means is we, when we, we do what it says, Right? Second thing, Romans chapter 12, don't conform to the patterns of this world. You know, if we, if we spend too much of our time trying to fit in and not to be weird in the world out there, if we're going to be Jesus' people, we're going to be weird in the eyes of a lot of people. So we're going to have to decide to not conform to the world. 
Third thing, don't judge yourself or others. Leave the judging to God. We just need to trust God. You know, I think uh, if we point people to Jesus and we keep getting them in the Word, they'll figure it out. The Holy Spirit will convict them. We don't have to. <clears throat> Last thing, Jesus said, love, the Lord, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, if we love God and we love people, I think we'll be more apt to be able to find that, that, that balance between grace and truth that Jesus had. You know, in, the, in, our fail t- in our frailties, we're going to mess up. Yeah. We're not going to do the right thing. We're going to make bad decisions once in a while, but then the, God's grace and Jesus' blood covers our mistakes. I want to I finish up with uh, reading, reading something that Moses told the people Back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, they were getting ready to go into the uh, promised land. And this was kind of like Moses' last words before he, uh, before he dies and Joshua takes over. But it's starting in uh, verse 15, Moses tells the people, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. That's truth and grace right there, isn't it? Follow God's commands, and he'll bless you. You'll find grace. But if your heart turns away... And you're not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death. Blessings and curse. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>